I think we're set. <laughs> Good morning. Thank, thanks for your patience. Uh, what I'd like to do uh, before we get into our message this morning is just give you all a little bit of an update. We are very grateful for the prayers and cards and support we've received since my injury and during this time of recovery. Uh, I saw the doctor on Wednesday, which was three weeks after the injury, for follow-up after the surgery. He said, things are going fine. He said, I'll see you in six weeks. Uh, I said, what about work? He smiled and said, I'll see you in six weeks. <laughs> I said, what about driving? He smiled and said, I'll see you in six weeks. I said, what about going to the gym and getting on a recumbent bike and just using my right leg? He says, I'll see you in six weeks. And my wife, ever the one just to cut to the chase, said, so doctor, what you're saying is no. Uh, and he said, yes, I'm saying no. So uh, we'll see him in six weeks and we'll see where we stand by then. We're grateful that things are healing well and I don't want to jeopardize that by being foolish and breaking something worse. Um, in other news, uh, my family, uh, ever ready to be kind. Uh, to be fair, they checked with Laurel to make sure I was laughing about this before they gave it to me. Uh, and I was going to wear it today, but I thought it might be too much. So I, I did have to share it with you, though. So there it is. Uh, and then in other news, I had mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, we had our eighth uh, grandchild uh, born. There he is, uh, Melchior. And uh, there he is with his biggest of his big brothers. That's our oldest grandchild and our youngest uh, together. So that's number eight for us, and we're enjoying that. We're disappointed we can't get up to Maine to see him right now because of my inability to travel, but we're grateful for a safe delivery and for his arrival. So uh, we're going to uh, get into our lesson today on the sanctity of human life. So before we dig into that, I'd like to pray, and I'd like to invite everyone as we pray, let's just stand together uh, and let me pray, and then we'll uh, get into this. Father, we thank you that you are truly the God of all our days. You keep us, you rescue us, you guide us. From birth to death, from beginning to end, you have sought us by your grace and called us to yourself. You give us your power in our weakness. You give us your wisdom in our ignorance. You forgive us for our sins. You transform us into your likeness. You guide us in all seasons of life. As we come now to your word, may you open our eyes to understand, our hearts to believe, and our lives to obey. We dare to ask you that we could leave this place today differently than when we came. By the power of your spirit, in the truth of your word, and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the sanctity of human life, Sunday. So what is sanctity? What is sanctity? Sanctity is the quality or state of being holy or sacred and thus entitled to reverence and respect. The quality or state of being holy or sacred and thus entitled to reverence and respect. On January 22, 1973, 
the Supreme Court of the United States ruled with a seven to two vote that the United States Constitution protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. This is the case known as Roe v. Wade or Roe versus Wade. Um, Jane Roe was the pseudonym for Norma McCorvey, who was pregnant at the time and wanted to have an abortion. She ended up having the baby because the law, Texas law, prohibited her from having an abortion. And by the time the case reached the Supreme Court, the baby had uh, been delivered. And Wade was Henry Wade, the uh, local district attorney against whom she was suing for the right to have her abortion. That decision 47 years ago this January sparked a national debate about the morality of abortion and the limits of personal freedom. And that debate, unlike many cultural issues of our time, has shown no signs of abating. And, and even so, there is hope that the law may change for the better after all of these years. There are pushes going on to uh, change that. Today's study is not so much an exegesis. Exegesis is an explanation of a particular passage as it is an apologetic regarding the sanctity of life. An apologetic is a defense of the biblical teaching that life is sacred. Life is worthy of being valued and protected across the continuum of the lifespan, worthy of protection in all conditions we can experience as human beings. There are four goals that I have for this message this morning. The first is to give us a scriptural foundation Many of us may not even know what the scriptural foundation is for the sanctity of life, and I'd like us to review that together. Second is to raise some awareness about the issue of abortion specifically, as well as the issue of the sanctity of life in a broader context. Thirdly is to make some practical suggestions as to what we may be able to do in response to what we hear today. And fourthly, though it's not the most important, I consider it to be very important, and that is to avoid guilt and shame. What I, mean, my, what I mean by that is this message this morning is not intended to create guilt or shame if you had had an abortion or have been party to one. It's not an attempt to create guilt or shame if you haven't done enough to end abortion, whatever enough would be. But it's to point to the grace and truth of Jesus Christ the fact that we are all sinners who live in a sinful world, alienated from God and the flourishing he created us for. But Jesus came to die for our sins, that we can know the grace and mercy of God and to live the lives he intended. He brings healing and wholeness, direction and purpose to our lives when we put our faith and trust in him. So I'd like us to take a short journey now through the scriptures. <laughs> See, it still doesn't work. Nobody comes running to see if I need anything. So, I'd like to take a short journey through the Scriptures, touching on some high points of what the Bible says about this issue. So I invite you to take your Bibles. If you don't have one with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. And also, I'd invite you to reference the note sheet. The note sheet in your bulletin has the high points of what we're going to be talking about today. So... Um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles as we continue to Genesis 1. The sanctity of human life, I believe, is rooted at least in two main biblical truths. The sanctity of life, the concept of that, is rooted in at least two biblical truths. The first one is creation. So again, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible. 
And we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 is the story of God creating the universe, creating the world, creating everything that we see and much of what we don't see. He created it all. And this passage tells us that just like the remainder of the creation, we as human beings are created beings. God has created us. We exist because God created us. However, this passage also reminds us that unlike the remainder of the creation, we are, as human beings, are in a special category. We have been created in the image of God. There's nothing else in creation that is said to have been created in the image of God, to reflect His holiness, His justice, His wisdom, His love, His grace, His mercy, His dominion over the creation. We are created in the image of God. Well, I invite you to jump forward then in Genesis to Genesis chapter 9 as we begin to see some of the practical implications of the fact that we are created in His image as it relates to our topic today of the sanctity of human life. So it's Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. This is after the flood. Many of us are familiar with the story of, of the flood and the ark that Noah built to rescue his family and the, and the animals. Uh, and this is after the flood, and God is telling Noah what life is going to be like for them after the flood. And one of the things he says starts in verse 5. He says, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. What God is saying here is that if a human being is killed, whether that human being is killed by an animal or another human being, God states there needs to be a reckoning, a punishment for that death. We see that even today in the wild. We don't go now indiscriminately shooting tigers and lions and mountain lions and bears. But if one of those animals does kill a human being, what do we do? We go after that animal and put that animal down because once it is killed once, it can kill again. And so we see that principle at work even in our lives today. But that's not the point of today's passage. Look at verse 6. God says, whoever sheds the man of blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. For God made man in his own image. God is saying here that as human beings, we are entitled to special protection because of our status as having been made in the image of God. So we are created in the image of God, and we are afforded by God special protection from the unlawful taking of that human life because of our status of having been created in the image of God. And now I invite you to turn to the third passage in this section, Psalm 82. In this passage, God gives us some specific categories of people that God calls out for protection. There are many places in Scripture that we see this. This is one passage I felt put a, collected a lot of them together. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So this is Psalm 82, 
verses 3 and 4. God says through the psalmist, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He refers here to the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted. That word can also include the disabled, the destitute, the needy. Other passages in Scripture, God also calls out the widow, the stranger or the foreigner or the immigrant, the innocent, the aged, and the young. There are special categories of people that God calls out as requiring special attention. Why? Because I believe the common thread of these groups is they are the weak, the vulnerable, those who often cost more than they contribute to society. And God says all, by virtue of having been created in the image of God, are worthy of special protection. Worthy of special protection. There's a prestigious medical journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, that we still read today. In July 14, 1949, there was an article placed by this man, Dr. Leo Alexander. Dr. Alexander was a consultant to the U.S. government for the investigation of war crimes in Nazi Germany. In his article in this journal, The Medical Science Under Dictatorship, he makes this statement. Whatever proportions these crimes finally assumed, it became evident to all who investigated them that they had started from small beginnings. It started with the acceptance of the attitude that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. It's very sobering. As they investigated the, what led to the war crimes of the Nazi regime, he says it started with the acceptance of the attitude that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. Well, we have already seen that God says there is no such thing as a life not worthy to be lived. So this leads us to truth number one about the sanctity of human life. All human life is sacred based on creation in the image of God. All human life is sacred based on creation in the image of God. Well, now let's look at truth two, which is redemption. Redemption. We all know that Jesus is God in the flesh. God come down as one of us to rescue us from our sin, to live the righteous life on our behalf, to die on the cross for our sin and shame, and to be raised from the dead to give us new life. Well, what did it look like when God became flesh? And I think this is very significant. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the passage we've actually, we have been looking at the last two weeks before this, and that is Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I didn't know what passage I was going to use for this message uh, for a while, and it was in the hospital. I wasn't sleeping well. It was about 3 or 4 in the morning when God says, use this passage the same one I had been teaching the two previous weeks, and I think we'll see why this becomes helpful. But what did it look like when God became flesh? Well, let's start in Luke 2, verse 21. At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Just in this verse itself, 
we see some very striking things regarded, regarding the sanctity of human life in general and particularly related to abortion. We see that Jesus was conceived in the womb. Jesus was an embryo. Jesus was a fetus. Jesus went through the first trimester, the second trimester, the third trimester, and he, gave, and he was given birth. His mother gave birth to him including being born into a family. And he had an infancy. And so here we see him at eight days of his infancy being circumcised and given his name, Jesus. Well, let's jump down to verses 40 and 42, or 42, 42. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Here we see Jesus now not in his infancy anymore, but in his childhood. We see him growing through his childhood, and there's not much that we know about his childhood, but this is one of the places that we see it, that he's growing through his childhood, and here he is as a 12-year-old boy sitting in the temple. He is a teenager or a preteen at this point, and then go down to verses 51 and 52. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus started a conception in the uterus as an infant, as a child, as a preteen, as a teenager. And then over in chapter 3, verses 23... Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So we see him now as a, a, an adult in the prime of adult life. Before we go on, I think it's important for us to note back in verse 21 that this is one of the places in the Bible where we see that human life does not begin at a heartbeat. Human life does not begin at viability. Human life does not begin at birth. Human life begins at conception. When two individual cells come together to make one new cell that begins to divide to, to become the human being, uh, full-grown human being that we are today. But why is this important? Why is it important that when Jesus came in the flesh, he came in this way that I'm outlining? And for that, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, which to me is a very striking statement of why this had to happen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For, it is not, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God." to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In short, the writer is saying here, in order for Jesus to rescue us from death, in verse 
17, it says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, verse 3. He says, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came like us. As I was reflecting on this, Laurel and I were talking about this. You know, if Jesus only came to die for us, if that's all he needed to do, he could have walked out of the Judean wilderness as a 30-year-old man with no one knowing where he came from. He could have just appeared ready to teach and then go to the cross. But when God became flesh, he started where we start. He started at the point of conception. David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, I was conceived in sin. I was conceived in sin. That's not to say that his parents were sinning when he was conceived. What he is saying is when I was conceived, I was already had a sinful nature. I was destined to sin someday because at the point of my conception, I was conceived as a sinful person with a, with a sinful nature. He had not yet done anything wrong, but he was destined to be a sinner because he was conceived in sin. Jesus came to rescue us from our sins, and to do so, he entered life at the same point that we enter life, at the point of conception. He can save every bit of us because he lived every bit of us. The old theologians in the early church had a, more, had a fancier way of saying that, but this is my simple way of understanding it, that he can save every bit of us because he lived every bit of us. This was the cost for him to become a fully human sacrifice for us. This was the cost, leaving the glories of heaven to come at conception. Just to illustrate this idea of cost, think of selling a precious family item at a flea market. You may think something is worth $50, but if all someone is willing to pay for it is $5, that's what it's really worth. The value of something is not what you think it is. The value of something is what someone is willing to pay to own it for themselves. The value of something is what someone is willing to pay to own it for themselves, which is what redemption refers to, buying something back. Well, Jesus left the glory of heaven to become one of us, starting at the very beginning of human life at conception through to death on the cross. So what value does God place on us with the cost that he was willing to pay to rescue us? This leads us to truth number two. All human life is sacred based on redemption, the cost God paid to save us from our sin. God became flesh, starting with conception, lived through infancy and childhood and teenagerhood and adulthood and died on the cross for our sins. God paid the highest price. God paid this price so that we could be redeemed, thus placing the value of human life. So the sanctity of human life is rooted in these two main biblical truths, creation that all people are created in the image of God, and secondly, redemption, 
the cost God paid to save us from our sin. What I'd like to do now is to go to a little bit of the awareness part of what I had said before, to try to give us some awareness of what's going on here and how to respond to this, perhaps. And to start this section, I thought it would be helpful to have two illustrations. It is estimated that there have been about 60 million abortions performed in the United States since 1973. And I tried to get my own mind around that number, and I settled on two illustrations that helped me to get my mind around that, and I'll share them with you, that maybe they'll help you to get your mind around that. The first illustration is I asked someone to tick off for us a series of noises. Each tick represents one million people. Each tick is one million people. And just to keep in mind the perspective, I can't even understand what a million is, the population of Philadelphia is 1.5 million. So just keep that in mind as every tick comes that represents one million people. a long time. It's a lot of people. The second illustration that helped me was I thought, well, how much of the United States population does that really represent? So I said, well, let's take the largest cities in the United States. How many cities would that involve? So what I'd like to ask you to do, just in this next couple seconds, is pick a number. How many United States cities, if you added up the population of those largest cities, how many cities would it take to equal this 60 million number? All right, so everybody's got a number now. If you said 10 cities or more, I want you to raise your hand. So 10 cities or more, okay. So keep your hands up, because I'd like to see what happens over time. Hopefully, you won't get too tired. This is 10 U.S. cities. That's New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Phoenix, Philadelphia, San Antonio, San Diego, Dallas, and San Jose. That's not enough. So if you said 10 or less, you can put your hand down. What about 20? 
Well, that would include Austin, Texas, Jacksonville, Florida, Fort Worth, Texas, San Francisco, Columbus, Ohio, Charlotte, North Carolina, Indianapolis, Indiana, Seattle, Washington, Denver, Colorado, and Washington, D.C. 20 U.S. cities would not be enough. If you said 20 or less, you can put your hand down. If you said 30 or less, you can put your hand down. If you said 40 or less, you can put your hand down. If you said 50 or less, you can put your hand down. If you said 60 or less, you can put your hand down. If you said 70 or less, you can put your hand down. The actual number is close to 80 U.S. cities, population. If you took one person out of each of those, out of a city, for every, per, every abortion that's happened since 1973, the top 80 U.S. cities, the population would no longer exist. This is more powerful for me than even I thought it was. I mean, this is just staggering to think of what has happened in our country since 1973. And this is just in our country. With that in mind, I've asked Melanie to come back and to share some things about what are some practical things that perhaps we can do if this moves you and you feel that you would like to do something. What are some practical things to do? As I said, the, the goal here is not to create guilt, but to create awareness, to create an understanding so that we can move forward in a good and godly way. So, Melanie, thank you. I don't know if I can talk after that. That was a powerful, powerful illustrations. Um, but there are things that we can do. And there, I, w I was telling David earlier in the week that pro-life work is a huge continuum. And Amnion Pregnancy Center is one little piece of that work. There's many, many things that people do all over the country. Um, so I tried to divide them into uh, three different sections, what you can do at home, what you can do in your community, and then what you can do on a more global basis. <clears throat> at home, certainly, we can all pray. Um, in family prayer time, we can pray for um, women to be drawn to, to a pregnancy center rather than an abortion clinic. Um, you can become a member of Amnion's prayer team and get uh, information emailed to you about various um, clients that need prayer or uh, clients that are in crisis and um, because we really rely on our prayer team. Um, we can pray for legislative issues around the sanctity of human life. Um, some people mentor families um, in crisis or with an unplanned pregnancy. Um, you can help your neighbor or a family member um, recognize their worth and their ability to have that child and, and to still meet their goals. You can teach your children, and I'm sure so many of you already do this, um, to respect life at all stages of life and to model that uh, respect always. You can read and teach the scriptures that affirm the sanctity of human life. We've had that this morning in a wonderful way. In the community, some people offer their homes to young moms um, some people adopt or foster children, which is a wonderful way to um, be pro-life. 
Some just um, become informal mentors uh, to neighbors' children or, or the parents. You can take a meal to a single mom or offer to do a chore like shoveling her um, snowy sidewalk or wash her car. You can advocate for sanctity of human life in your church with a Bible study or an activity like the baby bottle campaign that, that um, Grace does. And you can support um, the local pregnancy center um, with their events. And then on a more national or global label, you can talk to your legislators. You can pray for pro-life legislation. You can participate in the March for Life. I heard that someone was doing that earlier today. Um, it's a great family um, affair um, and a great way to see that so many other people support life. Um, you can, some people pray outside of a, a Planned Parenthood. Um, there's a 40 Days for Life campaign that does that, and that's um, a very meaningful time. Um, but one of the things that I thought everyone can do is to be ready to answer questions wherever you are. Um, Why Pro-Life is a book that I brought today, and I brought copies of that, and you're welcome to have it. It's free to us. We get them donated to us. It's by Randy Alcorn. And it answers a lot of questions that um, can be hard questions to answer. But to be prepared so that when that uh, subject comes up in your community, at work, at school, you are prepared to um, articulate your vision and your, um, your own convictions for life. Because I know a lot of us um, have that same conviction, but if we're not prepared to share that, um, you know, it can go nowhere. So um, that's one, um, one thing. I also brought with me today, and they're up here on the platform too, 30 days to be pro-abundant life. Um, the scripture calls us to have life and have it abundantly. So these are just 31 ideas. Some of them I gave you, and um, there are others that are there. And I know that you all probably have other creative ways. Use your own creativity and, and your talents to, um, um, to be uh, an advocate for life. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Melanie. And as we said, and Melanie alluded to, the sanctity of life is not just about abortion. It includes infanticide, child abuse, orphans, human trafficking, disabilities, immigrants, elderly, end-of-life issues, physician-assisted suicide. The list goes on and on. So I'd just like to close with some additional thoughts. There'll be a little bit of overlap from what Melanie said about respecting life and all of its aspects. First, as I had said at the beginning, no guilt or shame. If you are a person here who continues in pain from an involvement in an abortion or anything in your life for that matter, there is help. Specifically for an abortion, Amnion has services. Focus on the Family has services. There are other organizations. You could come talk to me or talk to someone next to you. But if you have guilt or shame from anything in your life, that's why Jesus came, to relieve us of those things you are invited to, to come. And as Melanie and I have been referring to, be biblically informed. Today's study, the book, there are other passages on your note sheet. If you notice at the bottom, I put some additional scriptures for you to look at. It's not an exhaustive list. There's more that could be said, but that could give you some other ideas. Recognize that no one of us can right all the wrongs. No one of us can right all the wrongs. Only God can do that. 
And he's going to do that at the proper time when he comes back. But in the meantime, God calls us to be faithful to where he has placed us, faithful to how he has gifted us, faithful to how he has motivated us, living by the grace and truth that are in Jesus Christ. We can't do everything. We can't be everywhere at all times. We can't, we can't all be calling our congressmen. We can't all be picketing. We can't all be writing letters. We can't all be doing, but we can all be praying. We can all be aware, and we can all be asking God what it means to love God and love our neighbors ourselves regardless of who our neighbor is and what others may think. Be aware of who's around you. Be aware of those whom God has placed in your path and ask what God would have you do. And this one's for me as well, is avoid self-righteousness and the unloving attitudes that accompany it. Self-righteousness is the destructive attitude that says, I am better than you because I understand God's truth and you obviously do not. Rather, God calls us to live in humble recognition that we are all fellow sinners. As believers, we are offering to others the grace and mercy and forgiveness that we ourselves have received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to come as fellow sinners, as fellow travelers in need of that mercy and grace. Support people who are doing things you cannot do with prayer, financially, volunteering, and then pray. Pray for our government leaders to have the courage to do what is right. Pray for a spiritual awakening to happen in our community, in our country, that many would come to Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the only way people can be changed at a heart level. Laws can change, but the only way people can be changed at a heart level is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for the success of organizations like Amnion or people that Grace Chapel supports like Heap and Jennifer Him working in Southeast Asia, taking care of disabled children. The religion of where they work says a disabled child is cursed and not worthy of being cared for. And they're working and they have a program to take these children in and care for them and rehabilitate them. Pray for them on the front lines of providing loving care in the name of Jesus Christ to those that others would discard. And pray for the March of Life coming up in Washington, D.C., Friday, January 24th. Pray that it and other events would draw appropriate attention to the issue and drive real change in our culture. I was going to go to that March for Life this year, the first time ever. My daughter Martha and I were going to go down. God had other plans for me. Uh, I'll be sitting at home. But Martha's still going to go down. She's going to go with another friend of ours down just to be a voice, just to be a body, to say, no, this is something we care about. This issue is not going away. I'd like to close with this. Hubert Humphrey served as the United States Vice President from 1965 to 1969 under Lyndon Johnson. At the dedication of the Hubert Humphrey Building in Washington, D.C. on November 1, 1977, Mr. Humphrey stated, the moral test of government is how that government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, and the handicapped. The dawn of life, the twilight of life, and the shadows of life. Those are whom God cares about. Therefore, those are the ones that we should care about. God has declared all human life sacred and worthy of protection at all stages of the lifespan and in all conditions we can experience.
This is based on these two biblical truths of creation, that all people are created in the image of God, and redemption, the price that God was willing to pay to rescue us from our sin. Let's close this part of our time in prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you for revealing to us the value you place on human life as created in your image. Thank you also for demonstrating your love for us by paying the extraordinary price of our redemption. Help us to know what it means to live out the value you place on life in our individual lives, in our church, and in the surrounding community. Help us to honor all life in the way that you honor all life. May we worship your holy name from sunup to sundown, from beginning to end. May you rid our country and the world of this curse of abortion as well as the disregard for human life. And Lord, help us to do so by your grace and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.